You're listening to The Cutting Edge, presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. Hi, I'm Petra Hilleberg, President and CEO of Hilleberg the Tentmaker. My dad, Bo Hilleberg, a lifelong outdoorsman, founded Hilleberg 50 years ago, and we've been family-owned, family-operated, and European-made ever since. We proudly specialize in building strong, lightweight tents and in never compromising on quality of materials or construction. Our tents have been specifically chosen by polar expeditions, mountaineers, backpackers, and avid outdoor adventurers just like you all over the world. We build tents for everyone's adventure. Additional support is provided by Loa Boots, crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. And by PolarTech, celebrating their 40th anniversary with the return of the legendary PolarTech Challenge Grants. And Gnarly Nutrition, Push your possible with science-backed, delicious sports nutrition. This is Dougal McDonald, editor of the American Alpine Journal. Our guest this episode is German climber Enos Pappert. Born in 1974, behind the Iron Curtain, Enos came to the attention of American climbers as a competition ice climber. At the Uray Ice Festival in the early 2000s, she repeatedly was a top finisher among all climbers, male and female but her climbing career has been about so much more than competitions. She's long been one of the world's best mixed climbers. She's a very strong rock climber and an alpinist with first ascents in Nepal, the Alps, Norway, Kyrgyzstan, Canada, and now Alaska. In 2000, when her climbing career was really taking off, she had a son, Emmanuel, and her life as a single mother and one of the most accomplished all-around climbers is a big focus of this episode. This is another interview in the series conducted by Sarah Hart called In Her Own Words, Conversations with Female Alpinists. The two talk about balancing motherhood with intense ambition as a climber, about forging an alternative path for women and mothers, and about climbing hard and swinging leads with your romantic partner, in Enos's case, her husband, Luka Lindic from Slovenia. Sarah's interview with Enos was recorded last year when Enos and Luca hoped to launch a dream trip of touring down the Pan American Highway from Alaska to Patagonia, climbing all the way. COVID postponed those plans, but this spring they got to spend two months in Alaska, and they climbed a beautiful and hard new route on Mount Huntington called Heart of Stone. Lauren Miller caught up with Enos near the end of their Alaska trip, and we'll hear their interview at the tail end of this episode. If you're lucky enough to meet Enos, you'll find that she's not only one of the greats of our sport, but also a delightful person, which I think you'll hear in these interviews. First up, here's Sarah and Enos, recorded in 2020. Okay, warm-up question. I like, I sort of have started asking um, people some more easy questions before getting into the more difficult ones. And I guess the first question I thought I should ask you is actually how you describe yourself as a climber, because I mean, you've done incredible things in pretty much every discipline of climbing. Oh, interesting question. I honestly, I just love climbing and every discipline or every different kind of climbing I haven't been doing before. I feel kind of curious trying it or at least yeah, doing it once and then figure out if I like it or not. So there's so many different kinds of 
climbing these days and so many amazing athletes doing crazy hard border problems, uh, like doing big walls and, and yeah. And of course you can be really, really on a high level in all those kinds of disciplines. But my favorite discipline always was one of my favorite <laughs> disciplines was ice climbing, but I love all kinds of climbing. And if I describe myself, I'd say once my eye catches a line, I feel really like attached to it. I feel like, yeah, I, I would like, I would really love doing it. It's not so much about the difficulty or the grading often, but this also came with a certain age, you know, when you're young, you always want to push your limits and see the more difficult grades. And the more years that I climb, the more I feel like I want to explore places I've never been, find new potential lines to climb and yeah, going into that unknown remote uh, remote spots where yeah that's for me the pure adventure to not know if it's possible or not you know you just try and once you see it you you find that smear of whatever taking you to the summit it's amazing and this is for me this part of climbing the, the adventurous part is a really really important one yeah so then do you think are you more inspired by climbing new terrain and by climbing first descent or on-site style or do you like to do route like to repeat routes or does it really just come down to whether a route catches your eye and is something you're inspired by or not I'd say I would say all of that at some point. <laughs> so when someone that did a really cool new route and I'd like to to try it, I I I go for it. And but of course, finding those places where no one has been or only very few people, and there still is potential for new routes. This is really really. Um, this is what I love to do the most. Let's say, but. We live here in a beautiful countryside of Bavaria and it's lots of lots of good rock climbing and alpine climbing and most of the routes are done, of course, because there are a lot of good climbers here in that area. Um, but yeah, the further you travel, the more uh, chances you get to climb something unclimbed. Well, here's another, this is maybe a bit of a different question, but when I was starting to do all the research to interview you, I realized that the bulk of your difficult climbing happened after you had your son. And, you know, here in Squamish, I have a lot of friends who are mothers as well. And they always say to me, you know, after I had a child, my risk tolerance sort of changed and they didn't really want to sort of like push their grade very much after that. But you really did. And what do you think, what inspired that? Yeah, interesting question. Most of my female friends, they get now with the late 30s or early 40s, now they get pregnant and get kids. And, and I feel a bit, I feel super happy for them that they finally found the right moment. For me, it happened when I was 26 years old and I just started climbing before. So I it was just too early to, to quit and to stop climbing because I could see this as more for me than just a sport, than just 
pulling small crimps or on my ice tools, you know, it's life, it's friends, it's traveling and it's so much more. And I always wanted to somehow, you know, bring my son at some point into that life without, I, of course I had to go steps backwards and I kind of quit for some time alpine climbing and, and longer trips but I started doing competitions instead. I noticed I had this lots of time at home, you know, when he was sleeping and when he was playing with other kids, I could, I could do some exercise and that kept me like motivated. You know, I was still like making progress in what I did and the competitions were for sure part of that because I could see myself being successful in the comps and just being happy as a mom, being at home, being there for your family, for your child, didn't seem enough for myself. So I never really thought about risk by that time because competing is not really a risky sport anyways. And <laughs> the only risk you have is that you lose. <laughs> And yeah, later when he was growing and when I had this network of amazing people, friends, family that would also take care on him here and there for a couple of weeks per year, I could see my chance to go outside and to play, you know, to transfer what I learned in the competitions and to do those trips to places where I could climb new routes or repeat hard routes. And yeah, risk management was always part of what I've been doing and I still believe the young ages the early ages when you start climbing that's that are the most dangerous ones because you don't yeah. see the risk you don't feel the risk you don't have this intuition because you just have a leak of experience and the longer I climb the more I see the risk and the more the more scared I get you know and the more often I I bail or abandon because of uh, some potential danger. I had to learn to accept to not be successful here and there, to fail. This wasn't always easy for me, you know, especially when you don't have a lot of time for a certain project because uh, your kid is waiting at home. And you don't want to go home and empty-handed and, and feel it was a waste of time. But every single moment and every single attempt that I failed was learning school uh, process to get me where I am today maybe and I'm still alive so this is a good sign <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> well do you feel Ines like um, your community of friends are sort of similar to you and that they are leading these less traditional lives like I'm imagining in in Germany it, it's much like in Canada where the assumption is still you get married, you have a child, you have a job, you buy a house, but you know, you have clearly done that differently. Are your friends and your community in, in Germany and internationally similar to you? Or do you feel like you've kind of paved a new path that's very different? I hope that I helped paving a new path <laughs> a little bit. Because when I do the my lectures in front of 
climbers or non-climbers, doesn't matter, in front of people that are interested in what am I doing. Often the female uh, participants or spectators, they come afterwards and ask me, how do you fulfill your dreams? How is it possible that you organize yourself uh, and manage everything as good that you could do what you're doing? And the same time having a small child. And what I always would say is, hey, you know, once you're really focused on something and you really want something, this is then your priority. And other things have to slow down a bit for a while. But of course, the family is not that part that should slow down. It's a difficult balance. And it was always a difficult balance for me. But I somehow we're lucky enough to have this network of amazing people helping me and uh, yeah you have to create your life around your goal if you're ready doing it and it doesn't matter what your goal is how difficult it is like I always tell the female people that ask me that difficulty is not really the value of of your dream like if your dream is whatever it is then go for it and um make your life creating around it and yeah if you're lucky enough you have that support as I have mm -hmm. were there other women in the climbing scene when you were sort of after you had had your son were there women that you looked up to that had had a similar life's path or at that point was there pretty much nobody that you were able to sort of have as inspiration There was an old lady from uh, Salzburg. Her name was Helma Schimke, and her husband was a really good climber back in the days. And she's she passed away already. She's about she was about eighty something, and she was that age or that uh, generation when she explained her husband I'd like to join you, and he took her, but she had three little kids at home already. Mm -hmm. People would would not understand they would you know they would totally drive crazy by what would she do risking her life while having three small kids at home and then he was killed in an accident in the mountains and left her unfortunately alone with the three small kids but she still kept climbing and wow. she was for me the person that would you know, I looked up to, she organized herself with three small kids and she had this business as an architect. She had to make the money for family and she got this little bit time off for climbing and she was really successful. She's never been super famous, but she was a lady I really look up to. Wow. Cool. That's really cool. And I, I think at this point now you're, you're that person for a lot of people that are, that as women have maybe a non-traditional dream for themselves. For most female friends that I have, it was like, ah, oh, first I want to, you know, have my career as a climber. I would like to do this, this, and do that trip. And then and at some point they realize, oh, it's quite late now. And then they get complicated, you know. And it is more difficult the older you get having a kid and pushing your own kind of dreams still a little bit so I believe the earlier you start the better it is and it also gave me the this amazing chance to introduce that life that I have that I'm living to my son and take him to the places he would never have seen 
other yeah. ways. Yeah, that's really good advice. Maybe everybody listening is going to take that and be like, well, I have to go have my kids now. <laughs> you know, and often it doesn't necessarily has to be connected with climbing like directly. Like, for example, once I went to Kyrgyzstan to an unknown mountain called Kisil Asgar. That was my first expedition to that remote place. And I was like, we didn't finish the climb and uh, the second time I went there, I thought I should bring my son. I had seen the place before. I, I could see it's a safe place for kids, but it's also a school of, for life Yeah, for him, you know, seeing how simple people live in those countries and uh, how little it needs to be happy. And yeah, even though we didn't speak their language, the kids were always communicating with each other and he had a really wow. fun time. So trips like that, I think they helped him a lot growing in his uh, childhood as a personality. Yeah, yeah. Do you feel like, Ines, you were, were you like unfairly scrutinized by people within the climbing community, but also people outside of the climbing community? Like, did you feel as if people were looking at you really closely and watching what you do and maybe being judgmental about the way that you chose to live? Or did you feel like that wasn't a problem at all? It was kind of a problem. I used to move like 20, 25 years ago in Bavaria. It's a really, like it's a place where it's a small valley. People are really, really nice, but not from the first moment they meet you. They are really suspicious and and when I came here and started climbing everyone was like whoop what is she doing she's not even from our place you know and then she's a girl and now those guys are my best friends but I was never like looking at it or asking why is it I took it in a natural way and I could see people talking about what I'm doing maybe not always in a good way or in a nice way by charging, you know, climbing is a risky sport. Whatever we are doing, we have to be aware of so many different kinds of risk. And if you're and not not a climber, you have a hard time to understand. But if you're a climber, you might understand easier what drives a person like me having a child and also pushing your own uh, level. Like you're in a perfect position to have sort of an opinion on whether if you were a man that was raising a child on your own do you think that that like do you think the level of judgment or scrutiny would have been the same or do you think because you're a woman you sort of take the brunt of it a little bit more of course uh of course a mom is uh, like the person that take care on the kid like this is the stereotype of what people still believe and what is hard for people to understand that there is two parents you know and um of course there's a closer relation there's always a closer relation between kids and moms than kids and dads um maybe we have this little bit more of responsibility but also i don't know I could never see myself just being home and happy being a mom. This is a lot. It means a lot to me and I'm 
happy it happened. Um, I'm almost afraid if it didn't happen, I wouldn't be a mom today. Wow, yeah, wow. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I was lucky enough to have this uh, possibility the right time. So just ask the girls, go for it as early as you can. Yeah, <laughs> you heard it here. Good advice. <laughs> and but you know what? I'm, I'm sure that life as a woman without a kid is amazing too. <laughs> There is no need to have a kid, but once you have it, it's wonderful. But uh, I could also imagine myself having no kid. I I could not right now, but if it didn't happen, I'm I'm sure I would be a happy person too. Uh, one of the other things I wanted to ask you, Ines, was mm -hmm. I actually interviewed Kim Shizmazia a while ago, and Kim is a really well-regarded competition ice climber, mix climber from Canada. I'm sure you know Kim. She said to me that women who could outperform men or who outperform men in climbing are often viewed as freaks or one-offs or sort of like, oh, they've got small fingers, so that's why they were able to do that, or their body weight is low, so that's why they're able to do that. Do you feel like people respected what you've accomplished Or, or do you feel like you've had to work extra hard in order to receive respect in the climbing community? Honestly, Sarah, I was always, when I climbed in your route, a little bit worried to great to soft because I was, all I wanted was people would enjoy the route and would confirm the grading because I always like to, if I repeat routes, I like to have a grading I can deal with you know and not like wow this is so overgraded or mm. so soft graded you know um and I knew if I would rate a route too soft people would say yes yes that's not that hard you know it's like ah, come on <laughs> and maybe because of that I tend to rate more hard on the hard side than on the easier side but um on the other hand once I repeated roots um here and all here and there i could hear people saying ah, it's not as hard as it was created you know <laughs> it's interesting but you know I'm, i'm not a climber that climbs for for the grades and i don't care about what other people are saying otherwise i would have stopped doing what i'm doing way earlier so i don't really i don't really listen and i don't mind <laughs> Has your experience been that um, men are intimidated to climb with you? I mean, you. how would you describe your partnerships? Do you mostly climb with men? Do you mostly climb with women? And and I'm so curious to know if, like, guys are afraid to climb with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, they're never afraid. I, I wish I had more chances to climb with other women. Um, once you mentioned Kim Shizmazia, it's so funny because... When I entered the competition the first time, Kim was there and she was the lady, you know, she was the winner and she was, she got twice as big biceps than I had and she did <laughs> 20 pull-ups in the isolation just to warm up, you know, and I could, could even, couldn't even do 10 and I was done for the rest of the day. So I looked up to her and I could see her climbing those crazy mixed routes already back in the days when no other female climber was able doing it. 
And I was always hoping to get a chance to climb with her, but unfortunately she kind of quit climbing when I started. So it was just, um, yeah, there was actually no chance to, to get along with her. So I kind of tried to find female partners often, not always had amazing experience, honestly, um, because I was all often driven by the idea, Hey, a female team is more equal in what we are thinking and what in our approach, how we would do things. But at the end, it's like that part of, you know, if you really like each other, appreciate each other, if you feel like friends and not just as climbing dudes going outside. And that doesn't matter if it's a male partner for me or a female partner. I have to feel this friendship and mm. um, often it happened, but sometimes it didn't happen. And then I don't really decide anymore in between male or female because of the the sex, but I would always first ask myself, am I able to spend four or six weeks in a tent with that person without getting annoyed about it, about each other? <laughs> yeah. <you know? laughs> and yeah, then it limits your field of people that you know already a lot because not every friend you call your friend, you would like to spend so much intense time with each other. And now I'm lucky enough to uh, share my life and the rope most of the times with my partner, Luca Lindic. Mm -hmm. So his our approach and attitude when it comes to climbing is so similar. And this is also what helps me to get motivated for a trip, you know, to prepare for something too. Often in my earlier life, I was the engine. I had the idea. I convinced people. I organized everything. I convinced them again. I helped them to pay for the trip in many cases. And at the end, they came along and we had... a often a really good time but often it didn't feel like we are a team as as like equal climbing partners but now it this is the case you know we we climb on a both on a quite a high level and we both have our moments when Luca would say hey now it's more like a thin ice mirror not so easy to protect it's maybe better you go or on the other hand it's overhanging steep like bad rock that's what he is used to a lot and where he's really really good at so yeah it took me a moment and i'd say almost half of my life to find a person to share life and rope with um i have never been trying to find a person like that but it, it happened and i feel really um yeah privileged and and happy about it but it was a journey it was a long journey <laughs> as it always is but I'm so curious, like, you know, my, my experience when I've climbed primarily with my romantic partner is that there sometimes is this weird dynamic where you end up like assuming your kind of gender role of like, oh, the guy is the leader, the girl is the follower, the guys are more the decision maker, the girls are more the follower. It's like, it's a very weird thing. And I've talked about this with some of my other girlfriends who, who climb with their partners is like, it almost just happens subtly and you don't even realize it. And the next, next thing you know, you're sort of like, wait, why am I always passing the lead off? Um, and so I'm so yeah. curious, does this, has this ever happened in your relationship with Luca or do you guys share things really equally? 
Um, yeah, <laughs> it's a good question because I also had to learn to, it's not now only me leading because he has also his skills and he has really high skills. And he was the same kind of person, you know, when he climbed with most of his partners, he was the guy that had to do the the work. Right. <laughs> and now two of those like, people meeting each other and um, trying to, you know, I think respect has a lot to do with it. Once you respect what the other people did before and from both sides, you can easier handle this. But we also have this moments when he would, of course, I knew he would be faster. And at the end, if it, like on Mount Fay, for example, it was the end of the day, the end of the route. Um, we knew we had to push it forward to really, really get off the mountain before the storm would roll in and the storm was there already. So there was no time and no need to talk about now. I, it's on me, you know, I want to lead. It was obvious to me that he now has the most, like the power, the the skills to move it forward, like in a really fast and efficient and super safe way. And that's how it should work, you know, when it's, when it doesn't matter on a four or six pitches full day climb, then we could always discuss a minute and say, hey, now it's me, I'm leading now. But uh, it it is a diff oh, yeah, really difficult question how we handle this. It's not always that I feel like, yeah, that was the right decision. Often, sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish I had climbed this pitch. Yeah. But I am... Um, happy for him if he did you know maybe 10 15 20 years ago i would be pissed but now i feel like oh i climbed so much in my life already if i lead one pitch more or less i i don't care <laughs> <laughs> that's cool i think it's cool that you describe it as like two people who like to be the leader or like in control mm -hmm. find each yeah. other and then you're able to actually balance each other out that makes a lot of sense yeah, yeah, but it's a permanent kind of work, you know. It's not that when we go sport climbing, we never argue like other people, like other other parties would uh, when they share the rope in a in a crack. <laughs> <laughs> um, but in the mountain, of course, when it's serious, there's no space for any arguing. Yeah. Um, but I also had these feelings here and there when I feel like. I wish I had lead this pitch. It was my turn actually, but and then I would also give up earlier if I know he could do it faster, he could do it mm. for sure on site, you know. If I would mess up the on site, I had to come down. It was not an on site for him anymore. It's mm. like always kind of yeah, juggling with with um also egos, you know. Yeah. But when you if your ego too serious, it, it will never work. I think we both have a good balance of how serious we take each other. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. I like that. Um, okay, well, wh what do you think, Ines? Would you consider, this is kind of like a bit of a blunt statement, but do you think that alpinism is a man's sport? And if so... What do you think, what qualities or characteristics or what, what do you think you, makes you successful in the arena of alpinism? 
Um, or maybe you totally disagree with that statement. Maybe you think that, <laughs> that it's actually a woman's sport. I totally <laughs> disagree with that, Sarah. It's a, it's more a female sport, I'd say. No, I wouldn't gender this, you know, because unfortunately there is not many female climbers being highly interested on more skilled alpine climbs. There's Brett Harrington, really active these days, and uh, Brett is a wonderful person and a really, really talented climber and transferring her skills from hard rock climbing into the mountains, which is amazing. And I love seeing that. And I love seeing all the young girls from the expedition team in Germany, Switzerland, Austria. They've got the teams. I By the time I started climbing, there was no team existing. I had to pretty much collect my experience by myself with mainly male partners. But back in the days... Um, I need to jump back in the days because I realized at some point when I was a beginner of climbing, I was, I was stuck in, in my, you know, growing because I would always follow other people. And then I was like, no, if I want to change, I, I would like to learn how to read a line, how to find the route, how to create ideas about protecting and stuff. I can't learn all that when I just follow all every time. But the guys were always more experienced, so they would go for it. Mm. And that was the time when I really tried to hard find female climbing partners. And I went with other girls where I knew they didn't have the skills that, that I have. So it was more on me. I had to lead. And uh, that was the time when I learned the most, actually. Yeah, yeah. Back in the days. And I still love to climb with girls, like with Maya and Smith Gobat in Patagonia. It was a really good time. And um, I've never seen a, a female climber like her being so focused, so ready to give give it all to, you know, she, pain is not, uh, it's, a, it's a word she doesn't even know what it is. Like Mayan is a machine. <laughs> And it, and it comes to also the hard work, you know. I, I never felt like I'm a girl here in the team. I want to be the princess. Someone else should cook my my dinner or melt yeah. the snow or build the tent up. It's always hard work in the mountains. And this is maybe not what speaks for a female gender in general. Um but we have to see ourselves also in the tough moments, like this is what we need to do, not only when it comes to nice pitches where I want to lead. It's so much work to get there, to carry the packs. My pack is always as heavy as any other pack, and um, the work to get there is shared like 50-50, and I wake up in the morning or the other person wakes up in the morning or both wake up and prepare everything this is more means more to me being a climber without gender you know without seeing myself as is my bed prepared already kind of person (laughs) (laughs) yeah so that's why i don't see i wouldn't say it's a male sport or it's a female sport it doesn't like depending on the person that does it and the depending on the person that is ready to do all that kind of shitty work before, during, and after, not just the nice pitches. So maybe that's the quality that you and people like Mayan and 
um, Kim when she was climbing, that's like the quality that you bring. It's that you like to try hard and you're willing to like do the work to get the job done. Yeah. <laughs> and that could be consistent across men or women, really. It's just like a desire to do what it takes to get the job done. Yeah, exactly. I've got a little funny story. Maybe you're interested in it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> When it comes to that, because I was with two guys from Austria in um, Kyrgyzstan, also Kyrgyzstan, Alaska, that mountain. I went the second time in 2011 and <clears throat> they both were sick when we approached and everything slowed down and we were waiting and waiting and waiting. And after some time, both recovered and we slowly started packing our bags. But I thought I take all the heavier but smaller stuff in my bag means I might have the smaller bag but for sure the same uh, weight but I didn't measure you know before we started I was just guessing this is now as much as they would carry and then we started hiking and uh, after an hour they stopped and said okay now we change backpacks because they were guessing my backpack was not as heavy as their backpack was And then I was like, yeah, why not? And then all of a sudden I noticed the other backpack was way lighter than my backpack was, even <laughs> though it was twice as big. <laughs> and yeah, this never happened before or after. And that was also the last time I climbed with those guys because I thought, hey, measuring the bags to make sure you have equal uh, weight inside is something I have a hard time to deal with. It's about the feeling, you know, when I pack, I usually pack more than I can carry. And um, then the other way around. At my end was exactly the same personality. So that was cool. <laughs> That's really neat. I guess I'm curious also, Ines, if you think overall that first ascending is an important thing for, generally speaking, for women who climb in the mountains, or is it more like are women more interested in repeating routes? Yeah, obviously there's not many really trying to find those unclimbed lines and go go for it. Um, there's even less only female teams doing that. Yeah, I don't know. I wish there was more female climbers having this desire to find unclimbed lines, um, opening new routes um, without knowing if it works or not. I've been failing so many times on Kisi Alaska, for example. I had to uh, had to come back three times and that's a lot on when you speak about a big expedition, you know, from four to six weeks. I wonder if it's like maybe a sort of a social thing where just it's assumed women are less exploratory and and less willing to take a risk on something that isn't known and, and just like generally speaking women more comfortably pursue things that are there's known risks or the you know they can mitigate the risks whereas when you're out there doing exploratory climbing you don't always know what the risks are or you have to address them when they come up yeah but you have to also be lucky with your partner you know because when I look into my life so far I also didn't do many new routes with only female partners I did a few in Canada with my friend Lisi Steurer with Mayan in, in the Waddington range but we also had a male uh, friend with us Paul McSorley which was great we had lots of fun 
And then, and if you look if, at the amount of alpine climbers, male alpine climbers, and then the amount of female alpine climbers, it's, it's such a small amount compared to the guys. And then, yeah, of course, if there was more female climbers, there was more female climbers doing new routes. But this is something I hope we will have more and more in the future. And I see, like... Caro North and Brett Harrington and um, many other names. Yeah, there is hope for <laughs> better times. Do you think that alpine climbing for women, the history of it has been captured adequately so far? Like, do you feel like the climbing community, women and men, know? the stories of women like yourself and like Kim and um, like Catherine Desteval, do you think that those stories are being told or have been told? Or do you feel like the, the history of women in alpinism is just like actually quite unknown and undocumented? No, no, no. I, I think that is quite well documented and uh, every, every like, publication I worked on was as much recognized as a male publication so I couldn't see myself disadvantaged because I'm a female and I'm also not that person who would push female ascents in a direction you know like I'm always making fun out of the routes that I have climbed and they're still some of them are still not repeated mm -hmm. And, but I wonder if someday a male guy would come and call it the first male ascent, you know? Right. That would be weird. <laughs> that, would, that would be interesting. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not interested in first female ascents, even though the media are often communicating it this way. I don't mind, uh, but yeah, I see myself as a climber, not so much as a not enough recognized or um not enough visible person female person yeah yeah okay um if you look back on your climbing career so far do you do you wish that you'd done anything different in your career Ooh, these days when i collected all my files on my computer to get a little bit of a structure <laughs> um also for you know the stories i would like to tell to uh, convince and and motivate people to do new routes or repeat the routes that i have climbed i saw that in some years i was pretty active like i i'm sure i was pretty active in every year but some years they were really successful and other years they were more or less i'd say the preparation for other years, the next years, or um, not successful at all. But this is what what the balance is in climbing. You know, often you sometimes you have this good luck on your side, and you have again moments where you don't really get where you want. But I never got depressed by it, or did I didn't feel successful enough, and I would never see. I would never miss any moment in in my life so far mm. um i've been always open-minded for new routes for new projects for I've always listening carefully to other people when they talked about places i have never been and um, 
also tried things I have never done before. For example, we attempted to Sopangma South Face two years ago. As like I would feel I would miss something if I haven't tried it to climb an 8,000-meter peak on a serious alpine climb, not on a normal route. So this is something I was never interested to do a normal route up an 8,000-meter peak. But I wanted to see how I would deal with this new kind of challenge. And I tried and I failed, but I survived, and that was the good side of it. <laughs> uh, but I know exactly this is not my game anymore. I feel super confident and strong and also able to climb hard in technical terrain up to 7,000, but for sure not a single meter higher. So this is what I, what I, where I limited my, myself, where I see my skills, but yeah, it was a bit of a new experience because so far everything I tried and I pushed worked out pretty well, even though I would probably not push that big world kind of climbing too much i'm more that kind of person of alpine style climbing you know small bag small team trying to climb as fluent and fast as possible without measuring the time because i'm not into speed climbing at all but yeah i learned within all the years where i see my my advantages and my favorites and uh, but every single try and attempt I did or route that I climbed in a style I would not really push right now I saw as a lesson of life and as a lesson as a climber and every time I learned so much for my next uh, trip and next attempt yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you so it's just been sort of a career where you've just been like building on your skills the whole career has been dedicated exactly. to just getting better, getting better, getting better, which is a really yeah. admirable yeah, way yeah. to climb. Yeah. If I had this this goal in mind, like, for example, um, doing all the 8,000-meter peaks, uh, which is an amazing achievement, and I, I'm really, I really look up to those ladies that did it, and uh, especially without supplementary oxygen and, and high-altitude porters and that kind of stuff. But can you imagine you did all of them and then your career is over? That would suck to me. I, I always like to have another project, another project, and I like to grow in what I'm doing in, the, in alpine climbing. In that kind of way, I'm doing it lately. There's so much potential on the entire planet that I would never call my career as finished because I did all I wanted mm -hmm. to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't want to take up all your time. Now we're pretty much at an hour, but I want to ask you one last question. And you've pretty you've also already given us some advice, that being have children when you're young in your career. <laughs> and I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would give as advice to young women who are aspiring alpine climbers? Um, we, we live in a generation where people tend to follow other people's footprints, you know, with social media and presents every day and, ah, now this is in good conditions, let's go for it. And I'm also a bit, you know, I'm also tending to 
to follow too much the, those kind of things uh, by not anymore trying something unknown, you know. This season no one has climbed it, but does it mean anything? It doesn't mean it's impossible. And, uh, yeah, especially as a girl, just trust your skills and uh, follow your instinct and your intuition and, uh, yeah, also appreciate what you're able to do. Don't question it too much. Am I able doing it because I'm a girl? This is no question. There's no question. You are. Before we get to the second part of this episode, a few words from Cutting Edge sponsors. Loa Boots wants to congratulate Loa athletes Ines Papert and Luca Lindich for establishing Heart of Stone, their new route on Mount Huntington. Loa Boots has been crafting premium footwear for the mountains and beyond since 1923. Learn more at loaboots.com. We get additional support from PolarTech, who have been outfitting climbers and other outdoor adventurers for 40 years. PolarTech Challenge grants send alpinists like Doug Scott, Steve Swenson, and Steve House on expeditions across the globe. Their stories filled the pages of the AIHA. Now PolarTech is helping us share new stories on this podcast. And by Gnarly Nutrition, fueling climbs and other mountain adventures. Imagine this. After training your heart out for six long months, maintaining a strict regimen, you're high on a wall on day one of a climb. But as the sun gets low in the sky, you realize you're bonking because your fueling failed you. The solution? Gnarly Nutrition. Gnarly is the most effective, science-backed, and delicious sports nutrition made by mountain athletes just like you. Avoid bonking. Send with Gnarly. And now here's Lauren and Ines talking about the trip she just completed to Alaska. All right. And as well, maybe we can just start by you telling us a little bit about where you are right now, how long you've been there and what you've been up to recently. Yeah. So actually, I'm on a trip uh, that came into our minds like a long time ago. Luca and I, we were supposed to do the Panamericana Highway and of course, climbing all along the way down to Patagonia starting in Alaska, but all of a sudden last year we couldn't go. Um, but we had bought our motorhome already. Um, so we're, we feel really privileged uh, to be able to make it into Alaska this year, which was a different story. We could do a full podcast only to <laughs> talk about the difficulties, <laughs> how to enter the States in these crazy times. Um, yeah, but here we are since nearly two months and yeah we've been quite active in the Denali range uh, recently last month on Mount Huntington and that was just what we needed you know after a full year of waiting and uncertainties and um, not knowing if we would make it and all the training before and still you didn't know would you make it there it was a special kind of gift to us that we were able to climb Huntington twice within a few days. Right. And was Huntington the first stop on your Alaska trip? No, it was actually our second trip. We were hoping to get some climbing in to, into the revelations. So we were there, but we got totally shut down by the weather, by the conditions. So we, yeah, we tried to climb a route and a new line, but that, that was actually the only line that seemed logical with the conditions but also there 
it was, yeah, just not enough ice, too much snow, useless snow. And so we turned around and were kind of, yeah, frustrated for the fact we, yeah, how all things came together to be able to come to Alaska and then just such a difficult start. But after that trip, we kind of kept looking at the weather and we noticed how great it is to have time to spend in the country, to just go whenever the weather and the conditions would allow. So after a few days resting in Seaward, climbing with local friends, uh, on the coast we yeah we always kept looking at the weather and we saw this huge high pressure system coming in and yeah of course we didn't want it to miss that chance but the temperatures seemed quite high unusual high for the season so our um, plan a fell apart by flying in already we could watch the east face of mount dicky it was just really barely any ice left so we kept flying into the range and Paul Roderick was flexible enough to drop us wherever we would ask him and the west face of Huntington seemed a really good choice since it's quite a bit higher and the conditions from the plane looked really really good. And you said you climbed two routes on Huntington can you tell us a little bit about your first climb? I had in mind that a long-term friend of mine, Colin Pavic, he was like talking every time we, we were seeing each other, he was talking about the ice line in, in the Alaska range. And I could remember it was on Huntington. So I asked him what route it was. He's been trying for several trips already. And he said, it's Colton Leach. So that was actually the line we climbed for the first time up to the top and it was brilliant ice climbing lots of lots of also like mixed terrain difficult snow and a really really nice flank up to the summit so it was just a full day of excellent five stars climbing and actually during the descent um while rappelling the West Face Color. Luca spotted a line on the on that face that hasn't been climbed and that looked promising. So I was too busy dealing with my dehydration that day because <laughs> we had only two bottles of water and we didn't bring a stove, which was, in my opinion, a bit of a uh, mistake. Mm -hmm. I was so dehydrated. I was just wanted to go down. So... Yeah, Luca still had some energy left to find this line and to look at it. So at the end of the day, we were just falling asleep, totally exhausted. And yeah, but the next day already, uh, we thought about this new line on the same face up to the same summit, which sounds a bit interesting. But once you're there in a base camp, you know the mountain, you know the all about the descent you know yeah we gained so much knowledge about during our first climb that it just seemed the right way not to waste time in changing base camps and trying to find another objective and we saw the weather window would get towards its end so it, obviously it wasn't endless <laughs> so 
yeah, we just decided to have a day to rest and then start climbing again. Right. So let's talk a little bit about this new line. What could you see of it while you were rappelling and how did that compare to what you actually found when you started climbing? Um, we spotted some smears of ice in that part of the face in between Carlton Leach and West Face Colour. And it, but it looked kind of steep, rocky terrain. So we were assuming that we would climb most of the time in that lower part, um, in rock, like with rock shoes and chalk bags, you know. So we were prepared to maybe start later in the day to wait till the sun would hit the face. Um, to be able to climb without gloves. <laughs> but apparently, or actually once we climbed to the start of the new line, we could figure out some ice in those cracks. It was not really visible, but just kind of dirty and matching the colors of the rock quite a bit. So surprisingly, we could climb every single pitch and crampons we did take off our gloves here and there and climb like with our fingers, but still had lots of lots of interesting mixed terrain to climb with tools and like every pitch was had a little bit of a difficult section, like a few meters, where we were really happy to that we brought an extra tag line uh, to pull the backpacks. Because climbing that steeper terrain with the packs wouldn't work in in a free ascent like this is always what you know drives us climbing free without falling without trying again or aiding so that just worked out in every single pitch until we reached this ledge system that follows towards the right and gets us into the west face corridor at the end of the climb and tops out the same route at the summit of Mount Huntington. Awesome. And what's the name of the route? You know, when when we like when we took out the rope of our packs and started to prepare for the first pitch, I looked at the rock and I saw a hard feature in the rock right at the start of the climb. <laughs> and we knew it it's like a route that has, you know, has to get named after that thing. So we called it heart of stone so there was a heart of stone and i think if someone wants to repeat the route it's pretty easy to find it <laughs> you just start where the heart is <laughs> that is a really cool feature yeah and so you mentioned that the route is pretty steep would you say that that's the defining characteristic of this route and if not what makes this route different than all the other routes on mount huntington our line is just going straight through the face and um, trying to get to this ledge where, yeah, you can obviously see this is a good line in mixed terrain. And yeah, just the question mark was how to get there while climbing the steeper part of the lower face. Uh, yeah, we had a hard time to get the feeling for the difficulty from a distance. So it was just so good to be able to climb every pitch without crazy difficulties, without taking a huge amount of time. And yeah, by the end of the first day, it was like 3 a.m. already. Uh, we found ourselves in a BB spot that was really comfortable, like stretching your legs and waiting the sun would rise just below the summit. 
So did you find out that this route had ever been attempted before? Do you think that it has? Or do you think that there's a reason why no one's ventured onto this section of the face before? We couldn't find any proof of that anyone would even have attempted that route. Um, but of course, we wanted to double check. We asked our friend Jack Tackle, who helped us a lot during the trip with the weather, with his knowledge about the place, with Yeah, he became some sort of a mentor for us. We've been always in touch with him. And uh, yeah, Jack also couldn't find any information about the climb that has been done in that part of the phase. Uh, but he's, he wanted us to double check with Mark Westman, who is uh, the guy that spent probably the most days from all of us in, in that range. So Mark also confirmed um, that no one has climbed it before. So apparently that's the case. So it's cool to give a name to route that for sure was climbed before and hopefully gets repeated one day. Yeah. Do you think there's a reason why no one's climbed on this part of the face before? You know, when you look at the mountain, you kind of, you know, there's those lines you see right away you look at it and you see this is the line this was the case when i climbed kisil asker in, in kyrgyzstan like there's no binocular needed Um then there's those sort of phases where you have to spend a little bit of time and to figure out where the route goes and uh, it took us a moment to find the line even with the binoculars it's it's kind of logical the upper part but the lower part is yeah how to get there <laughs> that kind of thing yeah a little more complicated maybe than some of the other routes yeah 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 and it's not moderate i would call it kind of harder than moderate so maybe that's why also it hasn't been climbed before right how many new pitches did you guys end up establishing Yeah, we started the same um, snow system as West Face Koloa for the first 200, 300 meters. And then we had approximately 20 new pitches, but some of them were like running on running belays. So it's kind of difficult to tell the exact number. Um, yeah, and the last 200, 300 meters to the summit again joined uh, Howard Road and West Face Koloa. So say half of the phase, a bit more, no, actually more, more than half. Yeah, two thirds. Awesome. Well, that seems like a tremendous effort. And it seems like, according to some of the reading I was doing and other people I talked to, that the weather was kind of hard to get right this year for a lot of climbers in Alaska and in this part of the range. And I was wondering how you guys ended up being able to be so successful. You get two climbs in in the same window. And I was wondering also if the aspect of this route was part of your decision-making because of uh, the fickle weather this year. Yes, uh, it's been really cold until early April or mid-April, mid actually. Like crazy cold. In Takitna, which is just a bit above sea level, we had 20 degrees minus Celsius. And it was like, Oh, hard to imagine you can climb up there. In the revelations, we we had this experience of a huge change of the weather, like crazy lots of snow and temperature rise up to, at, at the glacier, up to 10, 12 degrees plus. So 
this made us, us think what the weather would do in the next within the next few weeks. And we could see the high pressure, we could figure out the high temperatures for that time of the season. So we weren't sure and we really appreciate having the uh, opportunity to be friends with Jack Tackle, who we called the other day and we were like, hey Jack, what would you do in our case? We would love to climb Mount Dickey East Face, uh, something in the Wolf Gorge, but the weather seems too warm for it actually and we have no contact to anyone that has been recently in the area. And he said, you know, if I was you guys, I would do a flight seeing with Paul Roderick. One of you fly into the range, have a look at the mountains, and then decide where to go. Hmm. The day we asked Paul if this would be an option, he said, you know what, I can take you guys in. I have to bump some other parties from one base camp to another. And at the end of the trip, I just drop you wherever you want. So he said you would see the Ruth Gorge, Ruth Canal. You would see Huntington, Mount Hunter, and all that mountains. So that was quite a special offer. <laughs> right. we, we grabbed for sure. And yeah, that was the, the reason we ended up climbing on Huntington because that was the only mountain we figured out the conditions were right. Um, I think with mountain climbing, yeah, we learned so much in the Luca and I, we learned so much in our previous lives with having a certain goal in mind um, and sticking too much to it. Also, friends and sponsors and media was asking before we left, well, what are your plans? What are you going to do? Uh, we had many, many ideas. In our uh, folder on computer, it was packed with pictures and, and articles from American Alpine Journal. And we've been reading quite a bit about all those places. But we wanted to keep open-minded and decide by the time we get there. This way, it seems you get a way higher chance to succeed. And it is way safer too then sticking to a plan that doesn't really make sense with the weather, with the exposure, with the sun, with the temperatures. And also Mount Huntington is a face that has really good rock. And even though even though the sun would hit the face, it's like known for being a safe place to climb in warmer temperatures as long as there is ice. And yeah, apparently we also were a bit lucky with the moment we got. You know, I'm wondering too if having that this plan to go and get the RV and travel around it was keeping a flexible schedule and being able to move around wherever the weather was best part of that idea, or um, is that just a nice side effect of the way that you guys are traveling right now? No, it was part of the idea actually, um, but we were slightly. I, I mean, we are amazed every day we are traveling here in Alaska by the beauty of the mountains by the landscape, the, the wildlife, uh, but we are also a little bit, um, how to say, surprised how difficult it is to enter the mountains by yourself. Like each mountain you would see, you think like, wow, that, that's one we would love to climb. But all of a the sudden, there's a huge river you have to cross. Seems impossible. If there is a smaller river you could cross with a pack raft, then you have this endless bushy, bushy terrain or like other difficulties to get there. 
every time you have an idea next to the road, it ends up being kind of impossible, at least for us. We are not whitewater people. <laughs> and yeah, uh, we have do have lots of respect for all the extra hazards that we have here in Alaska compared to Europe, where everything is so easy to get, you know. Right. And so you mentioned before we started recording that you're in your RV in the rain now waiting to go into the haze range. Um, what ideas do you have for this part of your trip? What brought you to this new range? Yeah, you know, the, the climbers community is uh, a small community. And we've been talking to Colin Haley some time ago. And he was like, ah, the haze range is the place to go. It's so wild. There's so little people that would go there you're for sure the only party in the range and there's so much amazing climbing on that steeper faces north exposed faces so yeah same here we we will fly in open-minded uh we are later in the season now so we can't land on the glacier so we have to walk in quite a bit which is part of the expedition you know part of the trip it's totally fine but it needs the weather to fly in, first of all. And then we are hopefully able to climb one of those uh, magic-looking peaks from Delta Junction. They're, I mean, they're so far away, but still so big. <laughs> it's like the, the faces are like about 2,000 meters. Uh, wow. Huge, like a cup twice. Yeah. And there isn't much knowledge about the place, but... All the people we we had the chance to talk to, they were sharing their knowledge quite amazingly. I like we we've been running into Carl Tobin the other day. He's been climbing in the Hayes Range. We've talked to our friend Charlie Sasara, who has been all over the places, and um, we are in touch with Benny Lieberman. We are in touch with uh, any many other local climbers that are super supportive. And everyone appreciates that we come all the way from Europe, spend so much time in their their huge country. Same time, they have a really small amount of active people, alpine climbers, climbers in general. Um, and we get amazing support in any direction. It's This is a really, really cool experience we are having here right now. Even though we can't realize as much climbing as we would back in Europe because <laughs> the mountains are just too far and the weather is kind of unstable these days. But yeah, we learned some patience uh, in our previous life. So it's just about one or two more days to hopefully fly in. Awesome. And like you said earlier, you're hoping to, well, your original plan and hopes were to take that RV and drive all the way down to Patagonia. But I imagine that's a bit more complicated now with border crossings and COVID regulations. <laughs> and I'm wondering if maybe things will start opening up for you. And do you have plans to keep going or is it just Alaska for now? No, for this trip, it will be only Alaska. We'd love to climb in the Mendenhall Towers. Hope to get there somehow, but passing the border seems kind of, yeah, impossible these days and we might come you know we will for sure come back and keep the journey going uh, towards Canada and down to south but for sure another trip we were a bit a bit worried we would get stuck in Alaska since there's so much climbing but on the other hand there's many other countries with so much 
you know, interesting places we have never been and going to the places you, they're new for the both of us. It's like what, what makes this trip really, really special. Like we have a endless uh, list of ideas where we would like to climb all the way down to Patagonia and hopefully finish the trip on top of Fitzroy one day. <laughs> Yeah, it seems like it would be hard to ever pull yourself away from one area when you ended up there just to keep going somewhere new. It's so hard, I tell you. <laughs> All right. Well, is there anything else you wanted to add about the new route? We just figured out we climbed it the last uh, period of the season. There was just enough ice to make it. Like if there was a 20 meters blank piece of rock, we couldn't have made it. And it was, it's yeah, we feel super, super um, privileged and uh, really lucky that it worked out so well and patiently waiting for another window. <laughs> right. I mean, it's. I imagine that getting the right conditions on big mountains like that has part of it to do with, you know, planning and flexibility and choosing the right objective and paying attention to the weather. And part of it is just the luck of the draw. Yes, exactly. Exactly. That's what it makes it special, you know. If it was guaranteed you could climb a certain mountain, a certain route, it would probably also get kind of boring at some point. So, yeah, sometimes you get what you want, sometimes you don't. But this makes alpine climbing actually really, really interesting. If you want to hear more from Enos... She and Luca Lindich were interviewed in episode 19 of The Cutting Edge about their climb at the direct east face of Mount Fay in the Canadian Rockies with Brett Harrington. Thanks to Enos, Sarah Hart, and Lauren Miller for doing the interviews for this episode. Thanks also to Lauren for some editing assistance. The Cutting Edge is presented by Hilleberg the Tentmaker. If you don't have an RV like Enos and Luca do for waiting out Alaskan storms, you'll need a bomb-proof shelter like a Hilleberg tent. You can see all the options at hilleberg.com. This show receives additional support from Gnarly Nutrition, Polar Tech, and Loa Boots. This is Dougal McDonald wishing you happy climbs.